Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Holistic Leadership Podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. Travis Hearn, and co-hosting with me is Mr. Jeffrey Roche. And we just thank you for joining us. We have an amazing, amazing episode today. With us is Dr. Stephen Tang. Uh, Steve is a highly acclaimed, multiple award-winning chief executive officer, entrepreneur, and civic leader dedicated to the growth of innovation and entrepreneurship throughout the entire world. For over 30 years, he has served as chairman or chief executive officer for public corporations in life science and energy technology, leading nonprofits and key government advisory boards. He also knows a journey from outsider to insider as the son of a Chinese immigrant to the United States. Through that journey, Steve has been proclaimed as a Renaissance man for his many passions and achievements. Dr. Tang was a chief executive officer of Orashore Technologies from 2018 to 2022. And in the face of the coronavirus, Steve's focus on cultivating a compassionate workplace allowed his team to both stay safe and achieve tremendous success, resulting in impressive growth for the company. Dr. Tang, just thank you so much for being here. Uh, your new book, A Test for Our Time, Crisis Leadership in the Next Normal, is a book that this world needs. I'll tell you right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and why you wrote it? Well, Travis and Jeffrey, it's a real pleasure to be with you here today and, and talk about um, holistic leadership, which is near and dear to my heart. Um, my book, uh, Test for Our Time, uh, Crisis Leadership in the Next Normal, um, everybody asks me, what does that mean? What does a test for our time refer to? Well, first and foremost, it refers to um, the COVID-19 home tests that Orshore Technologies developed and made during the pandemic called IntelliSwab. Mm. Oprah Winfrey calls it the easiest test of use of its kind. Um, it was a real call to arms, I think, for everybody at the company to jump in and help us get it, get us all out of the pandemic. Um, and obviously, testing has played a key role in making sure that everyone remains uh, safe and healthy um, over the past three years. Um, we didn't have testing in the beginning. We saw the consequences of that, which unfortunately uh, cost a lot of lives. Um, so that, in fact, is what a test for our time means, but it also means a couple of other things also. Uh, it's my memoir, so it's it's uh, it's my um, uh, assessment of uh, what a test the pandemic was for my leadership during that period of time. And it really is um, both personal and universal. I think it's a, it was a test for all of us. Um, nobody was exempt from experiencing the pain and suffering and the loneliness and isolation of the pandemic. And I think it has its it still has its consequences to us all today. So that's what the book is about. Um, I think the reason that I that I wrote it was um, first there's a beautiful Chinese proverb that I love. And it's, it's, it goes, um, one joy scatters a hundred griefs. Um, so, uh, I, I thought a small amount of happiness and, uh, an uplifting story could bring great relief, um, to, um, you know, the, uh, suffering and, and devastation of the pandemic. And that's one of the reasons that, that I wrote it. Another reason is I think that leaders sorely needed guidance from past crises during the pandemic, and sadly, there weren't many available. So I hope this book provides breadcrumbs, if you will, for passwords for other crises that I think are bound to happen. And that's really what I call the next normal, which I think is going to be a, a series of poly crises, um, ripples in the pond, if you will, that uh, are going to magnify and affect everybody in ways that we can't predict right now. And then the last one I think is uh, most concerning to me, and that is I think we're in a crisis of trust 
that's eclipsing the crisis of the pandemic itself. Um, trust in leaders is waning. Cynicism, cynicism about our future is, is rising. So um, those are the three reasons I thought it would be good to share this story um, with, uh, with everybody. Um, I think stories like this of, of um, struggle and triumph during the pandemic haven't been adequately covered yet. Uh, hopefully this will be the first of many of these types of books and accounts that, uh, that come out. Uh, and it was a true labor of love. Um, I sat down to write it um, uh, in and around April of last year and had a first draft by the end of September. So, um, you know, it sort of poured out uh, of me uh, the things that I, I thought were important for the world to hear. So, you know, Steve, Orishore has always been, I mean, obviously, you know, I grew up in the Poconos, lived in the Lehigh Valley. So, uh, you know, Orishore was one of the most innovative companies when I was a student at Moravian University that we would hear about. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting to your point is that despite that, you under your leadership, you pivoted to respond to what was truly uh, a crisis. I'm curious if, you know, for you to delve a little bit into what was it like being the CEO uh, at a time when you had to make a significant pivot uh, yes, you were doing a lot of similar work, but but to go in and create what truly is, as Oprah Winfrey has said, and I've, I've benefited from the Orishore test myself, uh, a phenomenal testing experience. What was that like to lead that? And how did you get the team to you know make that transition? Because it's not always easy to get someone to just pivot. Well, under the best of circumstances, Jeffrey, it's, um, it's, it's very difficult, um, you know, pivoting into an opportunity that large for a company as small as Orishore was before the pandemic uh, meant that the company needed to completely transform itself. Um, and then you add to that uh, the profound concern I had for the, the safety and well-being of my employees. Um, and so it was a bit of a risky proposition, right? Um, so the power of the and is um, I, I had to assess whether we could do it, whether we could transform ourselves and keep each other safe and well. And I think what I found is that um, there was great passion to do so. Uh, obviously, these are wonderful people, smart people, scientifically based in the way they think about the, the world and analytically based about how they think about the business. And uh, the logic of it was overwhelming. Uh, we needed to get into this business to create this product to get us all of the pandemic. Um, but how you how do you do that when your previous business practices were all around getting people together in one room and solving problems? Uh, that was clearly going to be difficult and dangerous, right? Because getting people together meant exposing each other to the virus potentially. So yeah, there were a whole bunch of issues we had to work through to get there, but. Um, I think that um, the assessment of the situation I did as CEO was that we had great passion about uh, our abilities. Uh, the result of it was, uh, I think, a thoroughly transformed company. Um, one of the markers I like to provide folks is that, you know, in the 20-year history of Orshore before the pandemic, um, our manufacturing lines in Bethlehem had produced about 80 million units of product. Um, now the company has the ability to make 100 million units every single year. So think about that. You're somebody that worked for us for 20 years and what was the pace of working there? Well, we put out 80 million products in 20 years. Well, now we're gonna do that every single year. 
So that's that's just profound. And, and you know, the revenue of the company has gone from hundreds of millions to this year uh, projected to be over 400 million. So um, and we had very few incidences of COVID, um, you know, spread um, because of work practices. Now, keep in mind, people were doing what they were doing. I couldn't keep my eyes on them if they were sneaking out and, you know, going to gatherings and things like that. Um, but we had precious little infection uh, throughout the company. So I'm really proud that we were able to accomplish all that together. Uh, but um, yeah, it was a tightrope act for sure. Uh, and um, I think what I learned from it was this notion in the book of wholehearted leadership, which is you really do need to um, be present for your people, be authentic to your people, communicate to them uh, in a way that they can understand that you understand uh, the tragedy of the situation and the optimism of the situation um, and, and thoroughly care for them, not just because they're doing work for you uh, day in, day out, but because they are whole people with whole, full lives themselves. So wholehearted leadership to me meant um, being responsible and advocating for their, uh, their wellness uh, in, in mind, body, and spirit. Uh, so it was uh, quite an exercise in trying to understand the situation, understand myself, and understand the needs of my people. Yeah, Steve, you talk. I mean, that is that is just amazing. That's an amazing way to lead. That's an amazing way to uh, to think about leadership. When you think about the whole person, when we talk, we're going to talk about mental health a lot on this podcast and how important that is for leaders um, to 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 maintain and to and just to be able to to undemonize that that term of of mental health and leadership. Um, so one of the questions I had for you is what advice would you give a leader walking through a professional crisis? You have so much experience in this realm. You have so much advice to give. And it's just, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I think it boils down to two things, Travis, um, preparedness and adaptability. Um, and part of preparedness is understanding that, um, this once in a lifetime pandemic, which we all survived and lived through is probably going to happen again. Um, it's going to happen again because um, the forces that come together that make pandemics, uh, which is largely about putting species next to each other that aren't used to being next to each other so that viruses can spread between species and cause great damage, is going to happen even more. And that's a result of climate change um, and shifting demographics between uh, animals and, 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 other, and humans. Um, so... Uh, we need to face up to that. Uh, we need to face up to the results of um, climate change and, and, you know, sort of the absurdly different kind of weather that we've experienced over the past few years and that consequence, natural disasters, economic disruption, geopolitical disruption, all that's going to conspire together. And I don't think we've been as intentional as we should be in, in assessing our past experience with crises and putting the dots together uh, to making us fully prepared. Now, in my career, for better or for worse, I've been a CEO uh, during 9-11, uh, during the Great Recession, and now this. Um, you know, lesser crises like um, recessions and, and um, bubbles and things like that, I've been through also. But those three types of crises, 9-11, um, the Great Recession, and now this coronavirus pandemic, I think, have to be um, 
uh, assessed and projected to prepare us all for future crises. So that's one. The second one is adaptability, which is knowing that you're going into the situation. Um, and Travis, you know this with your military background, um, things are going to change. You know, it's it's the great Mike Tyson statement on strategy, which is, you know, everybody got a strategy to get punched in the face, right? Uh, and then all bets are off and you you really have to rely on your ability to make decisions on the fly and get best best information from everybody that you can. So <clears throat> I think we're all going to have our version of a crisis coming, coming up if you haven't already. And I think it's only going to be more profound as time goes on. So preparedness and adaptability, I think, are, are the, are the, um, the principles. Um, well, I'd like to say that I knew ahead of time what a profound effect these um, weekly messages would have on everybody. But the honest answer is I didn't know. Um, and this is where adaptability comes in and in, in, in ability to read the room and read the needs of the people. And uh, the heart of that, of course, is is listening uh, and creating circumstances where they're going to tell you the truth. So in the beginning, uh, the, the, the weekly messages, um, which started in April of 2020, um, were largely about making clear what we knew and making clear what we didn't know. Um, and there was so much we didn't know at the beginning of the pandemic um, and so many things we got wrong collectively. And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but, you know, if I think about how we were washing packages and mail coming into the house because we thought that was going to make us sick, you know, you know, we, we all have to laugh a little bit at that. Right. I mean, it, that was that was, you know, at best superstitious behavior, but knowing what you don't know and communicating to folks that you, there are certain things you don't know as a leader, I think is vitally important. And I think it, it opens the door for their own honesty as well. Um, you know, you've got to create a circumstance where people are telling you the unvarnished truth. Um, and if we're learning all together, that's an important thing to realize early on in the process. So in the beginning, they were kind of one directional company newsletters. Um, by the end of it, two years later, uh, when I wrote my last one at the at the end of uh, March 2022, uh, I think they were more like love letters. They were two-way exchanges, um, and they covered a wide range of subjects. And remember, during those two years, um, you know, we, we suffered devastation, displacement, loneliness, isolation, um, you know, Everybody knew somebody that had the virus or was dying from the virus. And unfortunately, some people passed away from the virus. You know, we had to grieve collectively about those things. We had to grieve about um, missing holidays and graduations and family celebrations. Um, and I think um, what I try to do is create an opportunity that, that for people to be not only safe, but to be brave and courageous about their own journey. Um, so what I said... Um, try to say a lot during those letters, Jeffrey, is, you know, we're all, we're all in the same storm together, but we're in different boats. And to me, my job was to make sure that those boats and the sailors in those boats were doing as well as they possibly could, because, um, you know, especially early on, we were all trying to find our way. So I think there's a, you know, there was a connection, I think, was made possible by the cadence of writing to the employees every week. And it really opened up possibilities for me to see what was on their mind. Um, you know, the confusion about 
um, political divide and social unrest and George Floyd's murder, murder, all those things, I think, were things that we covered, uh, as well as some, you know, fun, whimsical things like what was your first job or, you know, what kind of music do you like and why? Um, You know, so I would describe it as, you know, sort of a slingshot where you sort of dip yourself into past experiences where things were less complicated and, and more enjoyable and then slingshotting ourselves into the future and saying, yeah, we want to be back to that. And uh, in fact, transforming the company and producing Intelliswab will help us get there. So there was a, you know, sense of collective effervescence, which I hope we, we eventually came to uh, once we got our product uh, authorized by the FDA and began the massive scale up uh, to uh, production. So that's a lot to to your question of uh, these monthly, uh, these weekly, excuse me, Mo- Monday motivational messages. But um, I recall them fondly, and they're part of the reason that that uh, I think I was able to write the book so quickly because I had a lot to 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 absorb and and uh, parse and and frame uh, for the book itself. I do also appreciate that you said you know sailors and you know for the marine on here. To, to just remind him that, you know, the Navy is just as important. Um, and so, uh, but, you know, really definitely appreciate that. And I do, you know, after the next question, I do want to also delve a little deeper into, um, you know, the crisis aspect, because uh, particularly for the, for the team that you were leading, I'm hoping we can dig a little deeper after the next question on, you know, what was it like for them? Because, uh, you know, when you're on the front lines, uh, you know, as a healthcare person, my crises were very different than the three of us. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, when you have a, you know, when you have a trauma accident in an ER, it's all hands on deck. Um, very different, you know, across the board, but some similarities, but I'm hoping we'll delve a little bit deeper into that too. Certainly. Yeah. And Steven, I just want to say like the, so some, some of those, those, those weekly messages, like you'll never know the impact that you had on someone's life with those. You may know some of it, but they get, you could, I mean, I truly think that those things can save people's lives. They can bring people up, they can build people up. And just the act of being able to say, speak positivity, to speak life, to speak honest communication into your people, uh, it just creates a culture that is just undeniably trustworthy. And it's just, it's an amazing culture to, to bring forward. And me, um, I tried to, about when the pandemic was, was full, full bore, um, my team we, we, we talk about innovation and, and we, we, we were a very innovative and fast paced team. Um, but when the pandemic hit and we all had to go home, it was a little bit more difficult to be innovative and take risk. So we, what I, we, it would, but I found that through all of the fear of the pandemic by challenging my people to take risk and to become innovative and to, to make new things and create new things, it really jazzed them up and it gave them a sense that, hey, we are still doing things well. We are still making a difference. We're still making an impact. Um, so in your book, you talk about taking risk during crisis. And this, I've seen it. I think you've seen it. We've all seen it. It goes against every traditional piece of thought uh, when leading through crisis. In crisis, you're, you're head down and you're doing what you need to do, but you, go, you talk about taking risk. How would you encourage a leader to take risk during chaotic situations? I think it comes down to a word you used before, Travis, which is uh, you and Jeffrey used, which is pivoting, right? So if you're going to pivot strategy, let's first, you know, I'll give a, a succinct definition of strategy, right? Um, and I'll hopefully just demystify it a bit, but to me, strategy is very simple, which is, 
It's what's the opportunity and what's your capability, right? And strategy is strong when there's great overlap between the opportunity and your capability and strategy is weak when it's not, right? So I think we knew as a company that strategically we could do something here because we've had a history of, of creating self-tests for other uh, epidemics and pandemics like HIV and Ebola, right? Um, we had the only self-test for an infectious disease on the market, FDA approved before the pandemic, that's for HIV. So we sense that we could do this, okay? Not a slam dunk by any means, but we sense we could do this. <clears throat> we also knew that if we got into global health at this level, it would mean that we had to transform the company and be larger, right? <clears throat> so the risk came in, could we do it? And could we rally people together to do things in new ways with everybody in isolation and those that weren't in isolation risking their lives to come to work, right? So there's risk all over that, right? <clears throat> so to me, um, I talk about this in the book, it comes down to trust, right? So I have a, a handy dandy trust formula and that is credibility, trust is credibility times intimacy divided by risk. And I'll just break it down for you. So credibility is pretty easy. Uh, you trust me because I, I do what I say I'm going to do. So there's no, remember that what we used to call the say do gap. There's no say do gap. You, your word is your bond. I can tell by your actions, not just because you said so, right? <clears throat> and if it's a risky situation, which we're trying to do more with less or more under adverse conditions, boy, you got to be real strong in credibility, right? Intimacy, quite different. Intimacy means uh, I trust you because I know you have my back, right? So it doesn't matter how smart you are, but if I don't trust you because I know you have my best interest in mind and want to keep me safe and well, not going to happen either, right? So <clears throat> if you're going to induce risk to the equation and, and, and if risk is large, right, and the stakes are very high like they were for Orshore, you've got to build an enormous amount of trust through credibility and intimacy. And so I think that the Monday motivational messages help from the intimacy perspective, but they also help from the credibility perspective because I admitted what I didn't know, didn't pretend to know things I didn't know, right? And I think I invited folks to do the same. And when you create role models for credibility and intimacy, I think um, people naturally are attracted to that. And you can do some wonderful things that were beyond imagination um, before uh, the risk and crisis existed. So uh, it may seem like it was, you know, bet the company, and it probably was at the time, but um, it seemed pretty natural because the flow of credibility and intimacy um, happened naturally over time. You certainly can't force it. I can't force somebody to trust me. You're either going to trust me or not trust me. And I think it's because of credibility and intimacy. So um, I think that, it, it, you know, one of the myths about being a CEO is you can just, you know, by fiat, make it all happen and everybody falls in line. Um, that's not what happened. So to give, um, go back to Jeffrey's question about what was it like for the employees? Well, uh, in the book, I talk about two people that, that were heroes in my mind. Uh, one is Dr. Jody Berry, who led R&D and um, convinced me and convinced the leadership team and ultimately the board of directors that we could do this, uh, 
that we had the capability to develop IntelliSwab, we had the ability to scale up manufacturing, all those things, right? Um, he, uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, once we set out in this course, he said, oh, by the way, Steve, I need to hire some more people too. And I know one of them lives in California and one of them lives in Florida. And I said, we're having a hard enough time getting the people in Bethlehem back in the labs and in the factories. You want to relocate somebody in a pandemic from California and in, in Florida, they're actually going to do that. And they did. And he did, you know, so, um, so it couldn't have been just me, you know, we had to deputize trust, uh, credibility, intimacy, um, and leadership throughout the company. Lisa Nybauer, who I hired from, um, this behemoth company called Beckton Dickinson during the pandemic began leading a team that she had never met in person before for several months. And she hired folks, um, along the way also. So, you know, this notion, pre-pandemic notion that, oh, you know, you've got to be in the same room, you got to eat a meal with somebody, you got to see what their, you know, what their, all their faults are and quirks over dinner, you know, do they chew their food with their mouth open, that kind of thing. None of that really made a difference. It all came down to, do we trust each other? You know, are we credible? Are we intimate with each other? Um, and I think that those two leaders experience, um, during the pandemic were truly heroic, what they did to make things happen from an R&D innovation perspective, but also a commercial and transformation perspective. So, you know, I was not alone in, 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 in um, being a leader in this situation. And in fact, I couldn't have done it by myself. I had to do it through um, empowerment and accountability to leaders like Jody and, and uh, Lisa. You know, it's so powerful about that is is one word that comes to mind as you were talking about that for me is mission. Oftentimes in a crisis, if we're all on the same mission, not only do we achieve, but we also learn a lot from it. And I think back to my hospital days, uh, H1N1, I think of, you know, large Italian bus accident that brought us 20 some patients. I think of, you know, numerous uh, national tragedies that happened in the Poconos from the Eric Frane manhunt to a whole litany of different things. And I often say in healthcare, in a hospital in a hospital environment, we would say, why aren't we operating like we are in a crisis all the time? Because when you are in a crisis, oftentimes all the other drama or all the other things that are part of the normal day to day aren't there. And, and so interesting when you think about what, uh, what was accomplished. And obviously, I mean, just, just looking at Orishore's financial um, I mean, what I could see as a publicly traded company, they've benefited tremendously uh, from your your significant pivot uh, to do what you did. And obviously, I know the White House to CDC to FDA all have uh, recognized Orishore and you uh, for that decision, which I know wasn't just your decision, but but wouldn't have happened without you know your blessing. And so, so much to unpack there, but but really appreciate that because it's truly a mission moment when you think about it. Yeah, I think that the, the notion of being a first responder in the same way that an EMT or a firefighter or a police officer <clears throat> is is relevant. And I think that's the mentality that we had. Now, you know, we did not put our life literally on the line like um, first responders did. Uh, but the notion was run into the emergency and get down to work. Um, and, you know, there were lots of lighthearted moments when things weren't going our way and, and, you know, we were struggling with 
details of the innovation or the scale up process where we would kid each other and said, gosh, I wish somebody would just invent this easy to use test to get us all out of this pandemic. Anybody know anybody that can help us with that? You know, that, that really, you know, that really reset our thinking and said, yeah, that's, it's us. We got to do this. There's nobody else coming for us to help us. We got to do this. Yeah, you t- Steve, you, you, what, what comes to my mind when you say that is ownership also. Like you take ownership of what your mission is. You know what you're there to do. You know what your capabilities are. And working in a, an environment where you're separated and taking risk, um, the credi- credibility and intimacy and trust that that, that, that involves is truly outstanding. It's uh, and, and what you what you and your team created, not just not just uh, through a product, but as a as a team and as a culture and as a roadmap for other organizations like yours to follow in leadership, is something that it's it's. I have a, a chapter in my book book about legacy, about leaving legacy, and that's what you've left. It's 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 being able to have a culture that will li- that will that will carry on far after we are all gone and potentially in the ground. So that's just that's when you when you when you talk about these things, it's just that the, the way that you owned that and it's truly inspiring. Um, so this is kind of the final topic and we'll could just spin off from here. But like the pandemic, what it did is it threw us all into a new world. It threw us all into a state of crisis. The, the fight or flight mechanism and every single one of us was activated intensely. Some of us coped in healthy ways. Some of us did not cope in healthy ways. And we see that. We've, the, some of the mental health studies that are coming out now are shocking uh, about the way that mental health has played a huge impact on leaders and the way that they operate and the way that they lead teams and the way that they just live. Um, so the question for you is, what are some of the healthy ways that leaders can lead their teams on the other side of the pandemic? And how does that increase? Uh, how do they continue to carry this on as the hybrid remote work worlds continue to Well, that's the fundamental challenge in front of all of us right now as leaders, uh, Travis. <clears throat> I, I think it goes back to a couple things. It's, it's trust. I mean, we have to build and in, in leaders have to earn their trust every single day. So uh, to present yourself as credible and, and intimate with your people, I think, is, is vitally important. Um, <clears throat> and, I, and I go back to something I said before about what does wholehearted mean? And to me, wholehearted means nurturing the mind, body, and spirit, um, you know, unashamedly. Uh, you know, it's not just about are you being smart? Are you, you know, you, are you, you know, if you're in our factories, are you um, doing what you need to do on the, on the manufacturing line? with your dexterity, but it's truly caring about all those dimensions, including one's own spirit. And, you know, one of the things I think was a very um, challenging during the pandemic was um, if you relied on some sort of religious or spiritual orientation, who was your community? I mean, the churches weren't open, um, you know, and, and if, if I'm your leader and you're working out of your house 24 seven, Shouldn't I be open to at least encouraging you to have a spiritual life um, to to make sense of it all? Why are we so afraid to do that as as leaders today? Um, you know, why are we, why do we let get hung up in EEOC sort of um, taboo about you know not coming close to nurturing people's spirit or, or religious orientation? I mean, I'm not, I'm not certainly not suggesting we take a position on what that should be and what truth is, but we can certainly encourage people to do so. And then the last thing I'd say is, you know, we all we all wandered into this hybrid remote work setting. 
You know, it's not like somebody said, this is a great idea. Everybody try this. Let's have a pandemic and celebrate and do it. No, we, we did this by accident and now we're coming out of it. And what I don't see yet is people addressing the unique challenges of leading in a hybrid environment intentionally, right? We've, we've sort of, this is all by accident. So, you know, I have some thoughts about what, what we can do about that. And Travis, I know you've written a whole book on it as well. So I'll, I'll, I'll tread carefully on, on trying to be an expert on it. I'm just doing this out of experience, but you know, um, if I may, I'll offer maybe three things about leading in the hybrid environment that I, that I think is, is please do, please you know, do. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's the first thing is, I think, you know, we have to uh, recognize that, you know, leadership uh, for remote uh, and hybrid work settings is about um, nurturing team cohesion, uh, even when people can't be in the same room together. That's a unique skill. All right. That type of facilitation engagement, whether you're on a um, on a screen or in person and more challenging if you have people on screens and in person, I think it's going to be vitally important. And it has to do with clear communication from the manager or the leader about goals, progress, and challenges. Um, but it's also an opportunity for team members to interact socially and build relationships with each other, even if they aren't physically together. And the second one I think is leaders and managers have to be uh, experts in utilizing technology to try to facilitate communication and collaboration. Um, <clears throat> at Orsha, we talked about a single source of truth, right? Um, and that is having a document like a Google document or Notion document, something that um, doesn't require people to gather at meetings to rely on. They can refer to it on an ongoing basis. But it's also things like you know software and systems to help people stay connected and work together effectively. Um, you know, better utilizing video um, call software or transcriptions of meetings, project management tools and things like that. And the last one is ultimately about flexibility. Um, you know, you have to be able to adjust your approach as the needs of the team change. And particularly if you're working in, in um, topics that, that require a high degree of, of innovation and, and um, iterations and things like that. Um, you know, understanding what the work style is of, of, of your, your team members. Um, you know, in the, in the, in the book, I talk about things like, um, uh, integrators versus segmenters, you know, integrator, I'm an integrator. I can work 24 seven and switch between personal and professional <clears throat> topics, but not, ev not everybody can do that. Some people are separators. Some people say, <clears throat> here's the work window. I'm in the work window when I'm outside the work window, I don't want to be bothered. <clears throat> so I think that the, burden is really on the manager and leader to uncover all these dimensions, I think, of this hybrid work life, which is complicated. <clears throat> but unless the leader steps into the breach, um, it's not likely that the team members will be able to, I think, work uh, at their optimal level of productivity or satisfaction. So I think we've got a lot in front of us, but it starts with trust and it starts with intention. Steve, like uh, that, you, you nailed it just hit the ball out of the park. When you talk about trust and you talk about before you talked about incorporating the mind, the body and the spirit as a leader, I think since we've been thrown into this remote and hybrid work world, some, and not to say that it hasn't been around for a long time, but it, it has been around, but a lot of companies are, and leaders are new to this. 
and they don't know how to lead through that. They don't know how to recreate that trusting relationship, that collaborative relationship that we once had when we were working in, in person. So leaders really have to turn their focus onto their people even more so than they did before ensuring that they are taken care of in mind, body, and spirit, whatever that looks like, and ensuring that they are individually considering the needs of their people. I just, I, I, I truly believe that. And I think it's, it's something that, uh, is it, it's, it's something we need to work on, honestly, and as, as our leadership community, we need to be able to take a step back and look at these hybrid and remote work worlds and understand that we need to lead differently. It's a different world that we can still use some of the old tools that we have to lead teams. Um, but we, we really, the focus really needs to be highlighted on, on the people and how we treat people and the culture of trust that we're creating within our workforce. So Steve, no, I greatly appreciate your, your, your insight into that. Well, it's my pleasure. And the last so I think we need to circle back on. Oh, I, I just want sorry, to sorry, go that, ahead. Travis. And that's, you know, the, the, an indication that we're not being, trust we're not being trusting and we're not being intentional is the proliferation of meetings now right it just seems like compared to before the pandemic there's just more meetings than there ever were before um and of course that's not sustainable because somehow people have to get the work done rather than just talk about the work that needs to be done or report out about the work that was going to be done and that just extends the work day for a lot of people so my biggest concern at the end of the uh, my tenure at Orshore in 2022, which is extended to today, is burnout, which is people are earnestly trying to do the best they can do, but leaders and managers are making it very difficult because they're absorbing all their time. Because what are leaders and managers measured on? Well, are people doing the work that you said they were going to do? Well, how do I do that? Well, I get them all together and 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 make sure they're doing the work they're supposed to be doing. So. We just need a little more imagination than that, to, I think, to conquer, um, you know, burnout, which feeds into mental health challenges, which puts us in a uh, sort of a, um, a cycle that we don't want to be in. Yeah, I think we'll probably cover an entire session on burnout. And it's, and it's uh... I know we're I know we're tough on time, but I want to ask you, you know, 30, 60 second response. Um, one of the other issues and maybe you talk about in the book, I didn't you know, obviously read it all yet, but um, I'm curious just to get your high level thoughts on what leaders need to be thinking about with all the different generations in the workforce today. Um, because uh, there's a lot of challenges with that. And I know a lot of leaders are really wrestling with that, but high level thoughts as someone that's led organizations with all ages at all times, with experts at all different specializations, just high level thoughts on that. Well, I'm fond of the work that uh, Chip Connolly has wrote about and, and says a lot about. It. He wrote a book called Joy at Work, and he talks about this intergenerational challenge. And so what he puts on the table is something that I'm trying to abide by, which is we all need to be mentors, half mentor, half intern, right? Which says that those with wisdom have to share the wisdom as mentors. That's the men part. And those of us who think we know everything need to be interns to those who actually do know more. And, and I think, you know, the rising generations, the digital natives that have lived with um, the digital tools um, that people like me only discovered late in life can help people like me. So I think the key to it, Jeffrey, is being vulnerable to be uh, giving advice and taking advice and recognizing that uh, everybody has something to contribute. 
uh, and be flexible about how you view your um, access and receptiveness to new ideas and 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 uh, um, new ways of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. That is awesome. So, uh, Dr. Tang, just I want, to, I want you to just give a brief highlight of where, where can people find you? Where where should people go to look you up? How can people get in contact with you? One, buy the book, A Test for Our Time, Crisis Leadership in the Next Normal. Buy the book, buy the book, buy the book. Um, but how else, how, what, what other ways can people get into Well, you can go to my website, which is www.tang.ceo. Um, a lot of information there my contact information there. But um, in this uh, book journey, which is my first time as an author, um, I'm uh, savoring all the book launch events that are in front of me now through uh, June. Um, and I hopefully will be doing uh, speaking and corporate advisory work as a result of that. But um, I welcome uh, feedback and interaction on any of these topics. Um, and I welcome the opportunity to be with you, Travis and Jeffrey, uh, at another time. That's outstanding. Well, folks, thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been an amazing episode. Um, subscribe, follow along with us. We're going to dive into some amazing topics in leadership and education, holistic healthcare. Uh, this is the Holistic Leadership Podcast, so we cover everything. Um, so stay tuned and stay informed.